This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. So yesterday we were chatting with Ken Mann and various other people who were uh, involved and in, in down in uh, taking in the LRT meetings uh, down at City Council. And of course, uh, it went on for many, many hours. You can just imagine what that was like. And after a marathon meeting yesterday in regards to the LRT, the Bay Street stop uh, has been nixed again. Uh, where does it stand? Where do we go from here? What are the feelings of this whole project moving forward? Let's bring in Jason Farr, City Councilor, Ward 2, City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Hello, Jason. How are you today? Scott, I'm uh, good. I'm still trying to recharge, reset, all of that. You know, you mentioned Ken Mann. He was there for the full 13 and a half hour. He could have run. <laughs> Probably 12 marathons in the time it took us to complete that meeting. <laughs> You're the third person that I have talked to that has compared this to the Round the Bay Road Race, by the way. Well, <laughs> the timing's right, I guess. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I am surprised you're even up at, at this point. Uh, and I don't mean that as, uh, as a shot by any means, but this must be grueling to go through. Uh, it was. I think uh, if we didn't set a record, we came close yesterday uh, for an agenda that actually focused really on three things, so the EA and the Bay Street stop and uh, taking a look at a really great agenda item on the community benefits platform behind the LRT as a whole. So, um, But, you know, 40 delegates and uh, lots of questions for all of those delegates, uh, primarily a lot of pro-LRT delegates uh, on the back end and some anti-LRT on the front end. And, uh, you know, before we even got to the agenda, items really once we th- were through the delegations i think it was near three o'clock in the afternoon so so you know it, it was uh, expected let's put it that way your thoughts on what transpired how do you think it went what are your feeling on th- what's your feeling on things now well uh you know on the bay to, to open the way we pretty much closed it was a motion that uh, obviously it was uh a conversation that started on the Bay Street stop in January. Uh, it was moved unanimously at the LRT subcommittee that's made up of about six councillors and the mayor unanimously voting in favor. Goes to the next GIC for approval, as all subcommittees do. It gets shot down. Uh, rather uh, referred to the uh, meeting that we had yesterday. So it's taken a few months, and ultimately, in a very narrow vote, I think 8-7, don't quote me on that, but a very narrow vote, it was uh, pretty much take no action. Uh, Basically, I had on the floor a motion that asked, that at April, on April 19th, because nearing the end of our marathon session yesterday, it, given that there were no answers on the EA, which is the second of the three uh, elements of yesterday's meeting I'm talking to you about, uh, uh, they had determined April 19th GIC would be when we would get uh, a vote on that EA, which is meeting some timelines, but just narrowly. And since that uh, April 19th date was set late in the meeting, I proposed an amendment to my motion that on April the 19th, we would have have Metrolinx and our LRT staff report back on the feasibility of a Bay Street stop. Well, that was a little uh, weak. It wasn't going the way I was hoping that it would, uh, given that it was, you know, a prevailing theme of not making any decisions yesterday. And I tweaked the motion to say, you don't have to make a decision today. Uh, It wasn't going the way we wanted it to go. Councillor Ferguson stood up. Marula seconded a motion that said, look, let's just say yes to the Bay Street stop providing that it fits in the LRT beeline uh, envelope uh, and no report back necessary, just as long as it doesn't. And Councillor Ferguson initially was not in favor of this stop, yeah. but this was an amendment that spoke to the fact that he was, I mean, the reason why he wasn't in favor, and that was didn't want any cost overruns because cost overruns are costly, but they also add to the uh, timing of this project. And those are two areas that he's been very focused on as a supporter of beeline LRT. So I thought, great. 
And then the uh, standing recorded vote that did not land in the Bay Street stop favor. So to answer your question really quickly on where do we go from here, essentially in other communities where this has occurred, this term of council ends. It's a whole new item uh, as we proceed with the LRT. So it could two things can happen. It can come back to the floor. No two-thirds majority to overturn it once a new council begins. And we could add to the scope or... The, the, the one argument that we've had uh, with Bay Street is there's so much development potential. And in other communities, uh, when there's that kind of development potential or when there's a lot of development happening in an area that's between stops, the developers themselves will often come forward and say, hey, we're doing this massive project. It's a mixed-use development. Mm. There's some commercial here. There's lots of residential. We think this development, once through, deserves a stop. And then you work in some development fees that actually pay for that because ultimately the stop itself and the capital to put it together was $2.6 million of a billion-dollar budget. So uh, you're not convinced it's dead then? I'm not. Con- I'm convinced it's dead this term of council, Scott. Mm. Unfortunately, I think we've dealt with the matter. I don't think. I mean, we will ratify this vote like we do all votes at council, and unless someone else comes back on side. But again, like I talked to you last time on this one, there really wasn't, other than some words from uh, pro uh, base stop uh, uh, side. There were no arguments against. There was no real commentary from the councillors who voted against it as to why they were voting against it. And so, you know, and that that's... How does uh, that make you feel, Jason? Well, the same way it made me feel last time we talked about it. I mean, it's important to a lot of people. Scott, I mean, you were getting reports throughout the day. This is a big story in mainstream media, and particularly CHML. You're following this so closely. You've been checking in, and especially yesterday, you knew how significant this meeting was. And um, I think it deserved, uh, if you have a counter-opinion, then you should probably, on a situation like this, offer that counter-opinion. It, it, it deserved a substantive debate, and we did not see that here. And so how do I feel? You know, I mean, there are going to be colleagues on the anti-side or people maybe that are sitting on the fence that I work with every day and mostly collaboratively that are going to start hearing about, you know, that's going to start getting those questions. Why? Uh, without any debate or any real reason, uh, did you shoot it down? And is it really something bigger? Is this part of a bigger uh, ideology where anything that comes forward that has, is, is, is of uh, significance to moving this project forward, you're just not going to vote in favor for? Are all of these stops specifically within the downtown area, are they all set in stone at this point? I mean, you know, the, the big complaint is it's too, they're, they're too close together, obviously, at that point, if you put one in bay. I mean, can these be juggled at ours? Should you move one? Is it one or the other, or does it have to be both? So of the few uh, comments, uh, certainly Councillor Jackson did ask those questions. Uh, you know, what, why wouldn't? Why do we need to add a stop? Why couldn't we move uh, Mary, for example? Or why wouldn't we have a stop at McNabb was another question, because the bus terminal's there. Of course, the A-line BRT is uh, at James, uh, and so there's yeah, a cross-section there, and that's yeah. an important cross-section, too. Yeah. The westerly running LRT is actually spitting distance from the McNabb Terminal anyway. It is west of James. The easterly is just east of James on Gore Park. So it's very close to the McNabb Terminal anyway. Yeah, it's, not, it's not unusual to have stops. In fact, our report that uh, helped us uh, get to the point of suggesting a Bay Street stop actually indicated that it's not unusual to have stops in the major centers uh, in the cores of these 
cities, LRT cities, that close, 400 meters or so uh, apart from one another. And this is exactly what that is. It's not unlike what they're doing right now in Kitchener-Waterloo. So, so you know, those questions were answered. They were answered in a very simple-to-comprehend two-page report from our LRT staff that essentially said, you know, this is very doable. And certainly we did come forward with this. So many people hail the, the, the chamber, the, the culture folks, the hotel people and tourism people all came forward and all talked to the reason why this is a good idea, economic development and all of that. And, uh, and you know, that was a pretty strong, a pretty strong argument that adding the stop would be a prudent thing to do. And, and the, the key thing, Scott, is it was happening, this conversation was happening within the time frames that council approved where we could start negotiating where we could drop stops or add stops. So that that all happened within the time frame, according to our council-approved Gantt chart that that shows start to finish how this project looks and approved how that project looks. So we did it within the time frame we were supposed to do it, and it still wasn't good enough. That wasn't spoken to, however. What about uh, we had lots of people commenting here about uh, lack of information, confirmation on final costs, uh, cost of operation, that sort of thing. How would you handle those questions? Well, great timing on that question because that very council-approved LRT B-line Gantt chart that I'm talking about, the, 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 it's a one-sheeter that we, it was the first thing we did as the LRT subcommittee, indicates where those approvals come into play, the timing of it. And it's essentially uh, an operating agreement, and it's essentially coming, uh, I think it's second quarter or mid, mid, mid part of 2018. And that was a council-approved schedule, Gantt chart schedule, whatever you want to call it, that, that answered that question. So, uh, we, you know, and we were told yesterday by Metrolinks, by our LRT staff, that some of those operating questions can be answered. And certainly, whatever questions can be answered, we want to be as open as transparent and bring them to light. I want to hear them as much as the anti-LRT side. Uh, uh, and others uh, in, in my camp want to hear them as much as the anti-LRT side, whether they're anti-LRT around the horseshoe, uh, representatives municipally on council, or the greater public at large. So some of those answers can come, but we're still following the council-mandated timeline to get the operational agreement uh, forward. And things like delaying the EA, for example, onto the, the next item that was on uh, the agenda of the few items that were on the agenda yesterday, Scott, you know, once you delay uh, one item, it, it potentially can delay the entire project. And that's a, that's a big concern. So if you want those answers on the operating agreement, let's solve the problem on the EEA. And one of the things I'll say on the EEA, Scott, is one of the things we modified in the motion when we said, okay, we're not going to make the decision yesterday, but we're going to make the decision on the 19th. We kind of built in caveats that if you've got a boatload of questions, you have a week before April 19th CIC meeting to get them into staff so they can, in a in a comfortable and uh, timely fashion, bring those answers to April 19th instead of, which happens sometimes, and I may be guilty of it on much smaller issues, I'm sure, uh, where you ask so many questions on the floor on the 19th that we end up having a great excuse to delay that EA decision or any other decision once again, and I don't think we want to see that with the EEA because we heard loud and clear that it's very important that we make that decision on the 19th. Will there be a lot of politicking going on between now and the 19th? 
there has been <laughs> a lot of Maybe politics. I should say a great deal more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. there will be additional politicking, as there is on this file each and every day. And I think maybe, maybe, my own personal opinion for some of my colleagues, that's what is uh, one of the primary drivers in the nervousness that, that I'm seeing and many, many other people are seeing. And, and, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate because... Loud and clear, the message, especially of late, is there have been 52 or so motions for years, six, seven years now, that have led us to this point. And that's inescapable. And when you look at those motions, you're also looking at who was supportive of getting us to this point over time. And more and more people are starting to talk about it. I hear Bill bring it up in his intros in the morning on ML. Specs has written about it, and I'm sure more will be said to that. So eventually, you know, if you, even if you are nervous, even if you've changed your opinion on this file, those questions are going to have to be answered, I think. And, and, uh, I, and I, I don't, it's, it's, that's significant. That can't be overlooked. And that's a key part of all Are this. you still confident this will get built? Oh, I, I, I have to be. I'm a glass-half-full guy anyway. And, you know, I'm confident because history has brought us to this point. Mm-hmm. Historical decisions have brought us here. So here's the scoop, and, and this, is, this is the reality. Absent any alternative or option, Scott, and there are no alternatives or options that have been brought forward to date, and we had 14 hours to get a few on the floor yesterday, uh, this is very much still an, a beeline LRT that is in the implementation stages. And every day that goes by without any options or alternatives on this billion-dollar approved funding from the province that brings about 80% of uh, funding from the province towards local infrastructure that we'd otherwise have to pay for ourselves, particularly a lot of it underground, but the aesthetics above as well. Um, Every day, it's more and more uh, closer to becoming a reality, and that's the truth. I mean, that's just the the brass tacks uh, uh, theme that is playing out each and every day, absent any options or alternatives. Are you worried that delay will add to the cost? Uh, we heard that yesterday, uh, and certainly Councillor Ferguson, who has a uh, you know a, a quite a I think it's three decades of career in construction, and it's quite uh, uh, simply a mandate of anybody in the construction industry. When you take more time, you add to the cost. So absolutely. All right, Jason Forrest with the City Councillor Ward Two, City of Hamilton, and of course uh, the discussion will continue on April nineteenth. Uh, I'm sure there'll be lots in between, though. Jason, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have you asked Kenny Mann what was easier, the Around the Bay Road Racer sitting through 14 hours yesterday? He's still winded on the floor in the fetal <laughs> position, so I, I have not been able to ask him yet. But I will soon, Jason. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> have a good Thank one. You. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I'm sure you've heard that uh, as of today, I guess uh, the divorce papers have been served, as some headlines put it. Uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May has invoked Article 50. This starts the countdown for Britain to leave the European Union. To talk more about all of this, Alan Craigie is with us, lecturer in Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia, specializing on such things, and he is with us now. Hello, Alan. How are you today? I'm I'm doing well, thank you. Yourself? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Are you surprised we eventually got here? Uh, There was lots of chatter right after the vote that uh, it wasn't going to happen. Other people wanted another vote. Are you surprised we finally got to today? Um, that's a hard one to answer, surprisingly enough. Uh, 
a part of me is astounded because it's uh, given that the referendum was so close and it was so clear that those advocating that the United Kingdom leave the European Union were actually fabricating a lot of stuff. They were intentionally misrepresenting a lot of uh, a lot of points of their campaign and just making a whole lot of stuff up. That um, that there didn't there wasn't some sort of secondary mechanism to ensure that, given that that there was these truths that came out that the British people actually wanted to leave the European Union. So that on that one hand that surprises me, but on the other, given the fact that this is essentially a internal battle within the, the British Conservative Party and the Brexiteers, as they, they're known, they won that internal battle. It makes sense that Theresa May, who wants to maintain her position as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, would carry forward with that key demand from that uh, very powerful wing with the Conservative Party. So as a rational human being, it doesn't make sense. But as a someone who understands politics, I can understand Theresa May's position and why she's uh, why she's pushing forward with it. Uh, it appears like they didn't really expect all this to happen, nor did they have a plan if they got here. No, no. And we saw that the day after the... Um, the day after the results, uh, Boris Johnson, a very prominent uh, Leave campaigner, looking absolutely flabbergasted. Um, the uh, many of the uh, Ian Duncan Smith, another Leave campaigner, when asked about some of the promises that were made, he and this is without an exaggeration, put his head down and said, "Perhaps we shouldn't have said that." So um, it's uh, it's it's an admittance by by the Leave side that they they've made up a lot of their campaign pledges, particularly that 350 million euros or uh, pounds a week that would be diverted from the EU into the National Health Care Service, National Health Service, that was a blatant lie. Then um, the misrepresentation around immigration, the, um, the bold-faced misinterpretations around the Norwegian relationship with the, with the European Union. So there, there, was, there was a lot. They, I don't think they expected to win. They expected to solidify a political base within the Conservative Party. Um, when it turned out to be successful, they were left holding the bag. And um, they had no idea how to carry forward. And Theresa May is left trying to uh, trying to make sense of this. How are people feeling in the UK today? Do you think? Uh, there are some people that are overjoyed. I think um, there are some people that have a uh, that hold on to these romantic views. I would argue of the British past, where you know, and it really a lot of it actually stems from the Second World War. Believe it or not, that Britain stood alone against Nazi tyranny and all that sort of stuff, which is flagrantly not true. You know, um, hmm. the uh, so, but the, this era of golden mythology around the United Kingdom that. Uh, that Britain was this great imperial power, it did all this stuff on its own, it can do all this stuff again. It doesn't take into account the modern world. And the modern world has moved past that. It seems to forget the reason why there's so many British people here in Canada. They left because Britain was falling apart. Mm. They forget the winter of discontent in 1979, where the British economy, you know, had to be bailed out by the International Monetary Fund. They're forgetting this bleak period of 20th century British period, uh, British history, that um, that isn't exactly a great place, particularly if you were working class. How do both sides feel about these negotiations going into them? Obviously, there was a, a lot of bruised, uh, a lot of bruising going on uh, post Brexit. Uh, now that this has become reality, now that the dust has settled, re- and and we realize what what the task at hand is, how do the how do both sides feel going into this negotiation? Still hard feelings. Um, I don't think there's hurt feelings on the British side. I think um, from that particular Brexiteer wing of the British population, there's a sense of victory, a sense of confidence within them. 
Um, I think it's misplaced. I think the um, the the European Union is going to go into these um, these negotiations with a sense of power, because when push comes to shove, all the cards are really in the European Union's hands. The um, Britain's coming and asking for the European Union to give it a whole lot of concessions. The European Union has all sorts of incentives not to do that. It actually has incentives to punish the United Kingdom, um, so to make the negotiations very tricky. There's uh, the negotiators for the European Union. They no longer have any sort of responsibility to the, to the welfare of the British state. Their concerns have to be to the welfare of the European Union and getting the best deal for the European Union, regardless of the outcome for the United Kingdom. So um, if I was a part of the EU negotiating team, I would be laughing my way into these negotiations because you know that you're the one that is the power within it because the supplicant is the United Kingdom. How long will it take before we realize the outcome of all of this? How long before the dust does settle and we, we realize whether it was a success or not? or years, maybe even a decade or more before we understand. A a decade anyway, wouldn't you say? I I think so, because even if we think about what we're trying to do or what the United Kingdom and the European Union over the next two years are going to try and do is negotiate and disentangle 43 years of treaties, of law, of regulation, of agreements, of working together within this political sphere – Two years sounds like a long time. It is not a long time to get these issues sorted. Um, And during that time period, Britain's hands are tied. It can't start negotiating trade agreements with other states. It can't start doing anything anything else. Um, Britain wants to negotiate a new trade agreement with Europe and the divorce agreement at the same time. The European Union has already said, no, we can't start discussing what our new relationship is going to look like until we've ended our old relationship. So you're talking even just to sort out European-British relations five, six years at a minimum, I would estimate. How how is the economy going to survive this? It's almost like a lost decade. Um, Yeah, it's... uh, this is where we're getting into a lot of speculation because there's no roadmap here. And we saw that, I think, on um, the night of the referendum where a lot of economists, most economists, were predicting doom and gloom. And it didn't happen overnight, the doom and gloom. I don't think you'd be very hard-pressed to make an argument that the British economy hasn't deteriorated in the, uh, in the nine months. I think the, uh, it's quite clear that the standard of living has decreased in the United Kingdom as the cost of consumer goods has gone up in the United Kingdom. Um, so I don't think we're going to see a, a a very sharp decline, but it's going to be a slow, I would estimate a slow but quite clear decline in the British standard of living, in uh, the British economy, as uh, as all of this unravels. Because the big thing that we forget is that Britain isn't an industrialized society, it is a post-industrial society. Mm. And a huge segment of the British economy is based on London banking. And London banking is predicated on the fact that London is the English-speaking gateway into the European Union. 100,000 jobs in London, high-paying jobs are based, upon, uh, are based upon that. So the impact on that market alone will be quite devastating to the British economy. But again, I think it'll be a slower downturn. Are there any winners in this? Does there appear to be? Um, that's the big question as a political scientist. I always ask myself when I look at something, who is the winner? Because that really helps explain stuff. Um, I think Nigel Farage and um, the UK Independence Party came out as victors. I think there's a, um, a nationalist, uh, an English, not a British, but an English nationalist movement 
that uh, that really harks back to these glory days of empire that came out. So politically, I think there are some elites within these sort of movements that will come out victorious, and they will be able to um, to build their reputations, build their new sort of political regimes based off of this. But overall, I think that the um, the average person in the United Kingdom will be worse off. And there's an irony, I think, in all of this, because part of the campaign was very Trumpian. There was a, a Make Britain Great campaign playing around the ideas of Great Britain within uh, within the Brexiteer movement. But then we saw what's happening in Scotland. They're done. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Scottish government said, we want a second independent. The Scottish Parliament, which is a uh, more of a proportional parliament, so when they voted saying, we want a referendum, you know, that those were parties representing the majority of Scottish people saying we want a second referendum. Um, Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union, two to one um, in Scotland. So it's um, the, the irony here is that this attempt to make Britain great again could actually lead to the, uh, to the falling apart of Great Britain and the United Kingdom. And this hasn't even taken into account the complexities of Northern Ireland, which the whole Good Friday Accord is based around membership in the European Union. So where is Scotland now with its uh, debate on referendum? And and can can they do anything until this other deal is is resolved? Well, Scotland is a, it's quite different the uh, the legal relationship that the Scottish government has with the British government than, um, for example, Canadian provincial governments have with the Canadian government. Uh, provincial governments in Canada, if they decide to have a referendum, there's nothing the federal government can do to stop them. In Scotland, that it has to be agreed upon between the British and the Scottish government to have a referendum. And the British Prime Minister said she hasn't ruled out a referendum, but she's trying to push it back, saying we can't have a referendum on this on Scottish independence until we've had a referendum, until we've finalized what Brexit is going to look like. Um, so there's a, uh, so this is um, mobilized, I think, a, a great segment of the Scottish population saying, wait a second, why is it okay for the English to pull us out of the European Union against our wishes, and now the English are denying us the same democratic voice that they expressed in pulling out of the European Union. So it, it, it's, it's complex, and I think the power and the, uh, the political legitimacy and the political initiative right now is within the hands of the Scottish government, not the British government on this. It's a very tricky position for Theresa May. You were talking about how there is so much work to be done within a two-year period to try to unravel mm-hmm. all of these agreements that have been put in place for over 40 years. Could it be that it becomes so complicated, so arduous, that the whole thing does full circle and it doesn't look much different than what's there now? Well, there's an, that's, I think there's a funny thing about that because I think you're probably tr- correct. I don't Just think, simply because it, it's like a knot in a rope that can't be unraveled. Yeah, um, well, that's the first thing is tomorrow the, um, the British government will be um, releasing the plans on, um, I forget the name of the bill, but it's pretty much a bill that will take all European law and make it British domestic law. Right? So it's a bill that pretty much says all of this is now our laws. So if you were voting to get out of the EU, to get out of EU regulation tomorrow, they're going to reestablish that as British legislation, right? So it's, um, it, it is complex. The, the EU was not this big, giant, monstrous organization that the Leave campaigners painted it as. It was a, monst- it was a massive organization because it was a level of governance for a, um, for a political union that had almost half a billion people. That's going to be big. So it's... Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I don't think that uh, 
with regards to that, you're still going to need your environmental legislation. You're still going to need all your labor legislation, all the other types of legislation that came from the EU. Those are just basic legislations that all modern democratic societies have. So you're going to have to have some reinvigoration of that within a uh, an independent, so-called independent United Kingdom. We talked about all the rhetoric that was uh, flying around before the Brexit vote and, and, pol- and politicians jockeying from position and such. When this all comes to an end in two years, what will the political landscape in the UK look like? I mean, because it, it, it pretty much sounds like it'll be a bloodbath between now and then. Um, in two years' time, it'll be the, uh, it's going to be uh, Theresa May's big day of reckoning and the Conservative Party's big day of reckoning, I think. Um, if they're unable to negotiate a settlement with the European Union, which is highly likely, that just simply means that uh, the Euro- that United Kingdom is cast adrift, and that this is why the power is in the hands of the European Union, the United Kingdom would be cast adrift, and it would fall back just on the basic World Trade Organization rules for trade with the entire planet. And then it would have, this would be starting from this period of necessity to deal with all the other states around the world, where all these other states, their responsibilities of their national governments are not to the people of the United Kingdom. So, for example, the Canadian government's responsibility is to the people of Canada. So if Britain is desperate for a trade arrangement with Canada... Canada has a responsibility to its citizens to get the best trade deal for Canada, not for the United Kingdom, right? So it's um, it there's, it's it's I, again it's uncharted waters, but I can't. I'm having a very difficult time mapping out how this could be possibly good for um, the government of the United Kingdom or the people of the United Kingdom. Yeah, just alone with the confusion and the time it's going to take to even get somewhere with this. Uh, where is Germany on, on all of this? Uh, it almost seemed they were being sentimental today about, oh, you know, we're sorry to see you go, this sort of thing. Where does it leave Germany? Germany is the economic power in the European Union. Um, Britain is not the economic power that the average Britain thinks it is. Um, Germany is a major player within the European Union, and it is going to have a lot of clout within these within these uh, within the negotiations and this is where the European Union is really interesting and we need to understand the history of the European Union to understand I think the German position the European Union started really much out of the, what was called the European Coal and Steel Commission in the 1940s and or the 1950s which was an attempt to link the coal and steel production in Germany, France, Belgium and Luxembourg together so that no one society had complete control it was to keep the military-industrial complex of Germany in check. This is all a huge peace arrangement that's grown over the last half a century to ensure that we never have another Second World War. Germany recognizes the mistakes it made during the 1930s and 40s, and it holds on to the European Union quite strongly to ensure that it is a, um, this check against itself in many ways, but to ensure that peace and stability come forward. So what Germany is seeing, and or there's a risk that uh, the Germans will see this way, as this is a threat to European peace. Mm-hmm. So they're going to play strong with the United Kingdom on this. And the big thing is that even if Britain and European negotiators come to a deal, it still has to be ratified by 20 of the remaining states, representing 65% of the population of the remaining states. Germany itself is going to be about 15 or 16% of that. Right? So it's not quite a veto player with all of this, but you put Germany, France, and one or two more states together, then all of a sudden you have you know, a small minority of European states saying, nope, sorry, this isn't good enough for us. Is this better so, for Germany? They certainly have more clout now. 
Um, Britain has always kind of been the uh, the problem child of the European Union. So it's um, I think they're you know it's uh, it, it could work out that way. But we have to remember too is that. Britain historically has had a lot of rhetoric against the European Union, but the vast majority of the time, the European Union's interests and Britain's interests have uh, have coincided. I think I, I read an interesting statistic that uh, the Leave campaign said 77 times the European Council has voted against the wishes of the British people, which sounds like a lot, right? Until you look at it and see over 2,000 times they voted with the interests of the British people, right? So... There's not the huge disconnect at a practical level between Britain and the European Union as there was at the rhetorical and political level in many ways. Um, will it be easier for Germany? Maybe, um, but that strange alliance that exists in the modern era between France and Germany, um, they've already have the major interests there. So I don't think it's going to, it'll be easier, but I think it'll be marginally easier because I don't think there is, Britain made it that much more complex, other than at a political level. So what will the next two years be like, Alan? I mean, uh, obviously, there'll be lots of political turmoil, but even from an economic standpoint, I mean, is, 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 the, is the whole area on pause till this is settled? Um, I think so. I think a lot of uh, inward investment into the United Kingdom will, uh, will slow down. Um, there's, it's not going to end. Right. Um, I think just the other day there's a huge five billion dollar investment by uh, one of the Arab countries into uh, into the United Kingdom. But we've already seen um, that some of the banks have decided not to expand. Um, how is business? How is business viewing this? Business doesn't like instability. Yeah. Right? Um, no one likes instability. Just think about uh, 1995 here in Canada with the referendum. That when mm-hmm. you recall the uh, the dollar sank to sixty two cents on the American dollar, mm-hmm. and the only reason it was so high is because Quebec was using its foreign currency reserves to float the Canadian dollar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, we don't like, um, and markets don't like instability. And if this appears to be an in, an unstable period of time, which it looks like it's going to be, then I think it's going to hurt all of Europe. And this is where. It's particularly interesting because if it starts hurting mainland Europe, well, then the punitive aspect of negotiations comes in. You are hurting us. Why should we help you? Wow. Alan Craigie has been with his lecture in the Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Uh, British, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May has invoked Article 50, starting the countdown for Britain to leave the European Union. Alan, thank you for the insight. Much appreciated. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a Take pleasure. care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we talked about this, uh, well, I guess when the story first broke uh, several months ago, and uh, I guess uh, the Toronto Pride Parade was stopped at what point? At one point last year. Black Lives Matter kind of took over uh, and then said they wanted equal rights at a meeting. That meeting showed up, and then somehow they all voted to to keep the Metro Toronto Police out of the parade. Uh, and I've talked to many in the LGBT community uh, on this show regarding this, and I, and I certainly understand what they are saying when they say that they fear police. I understand what they're saying, but what I don't understand is how it, it, excluding somebody from a celebration like this, uh, I'm not sure how that helps. So and although I, 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 it was interesting to to listen to the community explain what the reasoning was and 
what we need to do to fix it. They didn't really say how this would help in any way and what this is doing to help in any way. And what it really seems to be doing is creating divisiveness within the community. So that being said, uh, one city councilor in Toronto thought, well, why are we funding something when they don't let our police service participate in it? And a city, the city councilor is putting forward a motion to drop the city's funding for Pride until they allow the police floats back in. Joining us is John Campbell, Toronto Councilor Ward 4, Etobicoke Centre, and is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Lots may say, John, why are you even weighing in on this? It's just a bomb with uh, nowhere to throw this thing. <laughs> I've had a few of those comments. Well, so, so, it, so what did why, it for you, John? What did it for well, you? Well, originally I was going to bring this forward back in February during the budget committee round, and but that wasn't the appropriate time to sort of address the funding issue. What did it for me was the tactics used by Black Lives Matter to, to uh, bully or extort decisions out of the pride organization that they might otherwise not have taken, and that being to exclude the police. And so as councillors in any municipality know, with the granting of funding come certain expectations. You know, we can talk about equity and diversity and inclusiveness, but all of these organizations that we give money to for various uh, services around the city, there there are expectations that we have them, uh, that we hold them up to. And so in this particular case, I'm not comfortable with the city continuing to pretend like nothing happened and issue a check for $260,000 to the pride organizers uh, when they have decided to exclude the police. And on their website, you know, they talk about their core value of inclusivity. So these, um, you know, that they've, uh, this obviously flies in the face of that when they have decided to this, take this sort of aggressive position against the police. Have you talked to pride about this? I mean, I can certainly, and again, I've talked to the LGBT community on this. We've had them on the air. I understand what the issues are, but what I don't get is how this process helps the discussion. Well, no, so I have not spoken to them. It was not my intent to bring this forward at this point in time. I was going to wait until April. I was going to have a discussion with Pride before bringing it forward and through the proper channels. Uh, I was asked a, a question by a reporter. I always answer questions. They had heard that something was in the uh, in the offing, and so I answered the question to the, the CBC. That then broke the story, and then you know we started getting some phone calls, and I'm just addressing the questions as they're as they're answered. I I certainly intend to meet with Pride next week. Our counselor who heads up economic development, uh, Michael Thompson, is, is having a meeting with the Pride organizers, and he's asked me to attend, and I certainly will do so. In your feeling, does this tarnish the image of Pride? You know, I don't think, well, yes, the exclusion of the police, absolutely, I think it does. I mean, but that's only my opinion. You know, I don't speak for the city. I don't speak for the mayor. My personal opinion is that they should not have, um, you know, acceded to the demands of, of the Black Lives Matter organization. But uh, on the other hand, what choice did they have? They were they were holding a festival. They had invited Black Lives Matter into the, into the parade last year. I suppose at that point in time, you know, they agreed to the demands. And then, although there was some reconsiderations, the board, a new board decided to uphold the decision that was taken during the parade last year. So does it tarnish them? I, I, I can tell you from the response that we've had that there are a lot of people in agreement with the, the stance that you know I'm, I'm going to ask the council to take. 
the uh, Toronto Pride Executive Director said, quote, our membership's relationship with the police was spelled out as an issue. We feel positive that we will find the right solution to the issues we have uh, that have been brought up. When or where? What are they talking about? Like... Well, I, I, that's a good question, and I, and if there were, and I know, of course, there are there is a long history of issues between the police. Of and course, Toronto, there are, but again, and, yeah. I guess I guess getting back to my real point, and I'm and I'm, of course I'm asking the wrong person these questions, but uh, what is the plan? How do we solve this moving forward? Well, I think. Listen, I think that the we have a, we have a chief who is interested in in, in goodwill. Uh, we have the Pride organization who I think are interested in having good relations with the police. They're going about it in kind of a peculiar way, and so the the two sides really need to talk to each other. And I guess police. And again, you you are talking to the wrong guy because I'm not a. Like, <laughs> and, I'm, and we're I'm, trying to get the executive director on. There was one other yeah. thing that the one other thing that that concerned me about this. She said her understanding is that the police withdrew from the facility festivities in order to minimize negativity, which, of course, we know that's what the police chief did. But my goodness, how can you have those rose colored glasses on? He didn't, you know, listen, he did, he did, he took the high road yeah. and he said, you know, we'll, we'll avoid the controversy because let's face it, what would he rather be do, doing? Would he rather be trying to fight crime and deal with issues on the street and gangs and so on? Or would he rather be, you know, focusing his efforts on public relations? I think he would rather that he didn't have to deal with this issue and who can blame him? He's got a big job to do. And so as a way of diffusing it, he said, you know what? We'll just we'll just not be bothered with the parade this year. However, it should be noted that the parade organizers will still ask for something to the tune of half a million dollars in free policing, which the police have provided in the past. And the city also gives you know it gives a total of about three um, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in in kind support through transportation services, uh, paramedics, and so on. And and um, and then there's our two hundred sixty thousand. You're looking at almost a million dollars in supports that go to Pride. Has this divided uh, the Pride community, do you think? Well, that's a good question. I have, you know, they say that with every email that you get, it sort of represents 15 or 20 or something along those lines. I've had some emails from some uh, members of the gay community who said that they were upset with the, uh, the, I guess, the takeover of the Pride organization by Black Lives Matter, and that they were unhappy with the way things have unfolded. I suspect they're probably representative of quite a number of people. Um, you know, I, I, we have not had a, a we, for, um, for my office, it's a bit of a deluge. We've had over, I would say, I think it's over 120 people uh, write or call the office in the last 24 hours. That's certainly more than I get from my suburban uh, my suburban ward. And um, and 97, you know, 97 were in favor, 20 were opposed. So, you know, a lot of people have found agreement with the position that I've taken. And a number of them, we've had, we've had emails from cops on the street, from Toronto, from abroad, and also, as I said, from members of the gay community. So what happens now, John? How do you move forward with this? Where do you think well, this discussion's going? Well, listen, you know, not, I'm not going to play hardball, but I do have a principle under which I'm, I'm operating here, and that is that I think that I would be happy to see uh, the Black Lives, or sorry, the, uh, the Pride organization uh, say to the police that, you know, you're welcome to join in the parade, in uniform or out of uniform, and that would be the end of it. And then it, it, and then it starts sort of on the road to, um, to better relationships between the two organizations, the two communities. 
John Campbell has been with us, Toronto Councillor, Ward 4, Etobicoke Centre, wants to, of course, put forward a, mor- a motion to drop the city's funding of Pride until they allow the police to participate again. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, we have been trying to get the executive director of uh, Pride on and just have not been able to uh, at this point. I find it, uh, I, I find it fascinating that uh, she seems to be... Uh, avoiding the issue in a sense and and even issuing the statement that uh, it was her understanding that the police withdrew from the festivities uh, as if seemingly not understanding why that happened uh, and again uh, how how excluding someone uh, possibly moves the discussion forward I'm not sure and have there been any other discussions that have been had uh, since it was announced that uh, the Toronto Police Service would not be allowed to participate. You know, I, I'm not sure it's changed the discussion. It seems to have just divided uh, the gay community. Let's bring in Savoy Williams, Brock student, a recipient of the John Holland Award in 2015, the Nelson Mandela Award for Youth in 2015, and with us now. Hello, Savoy. How are you today? Hi there. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks very. Thanks very good. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? How how can how can excluding uh, any group, whether it's the Toronto Police Service uh, in, in this case, out of a pride parade? How does that move the discussion forward, Savoy? Now, I'm going to uh, rephrase your question because I don't think it's necessarily the discussion that that's being had is on the exclusion portion, but more so about the cutting funding portion. And cutting funding, what that signifies to the entirety of the LGBTQ community is that it doesn't matter. The people within the community who are motioning forward to say, we don't feel safe when we have these, uh, when we have this institution, this system body at our event that we are supposed to feel safe at. We don't feel safe. And as an LGBTQ community, that pride parade, the whole event, is to make everyone there feel celebrated and included by cutting funding. That is signifying that the greater Toronto um, people do not align with LGBTQ individuals and their safety. I can completely understand, uh, and we've had many from the community on explaining what you have just said, that obviously they do not feel safe uh, in this environment. They do not feel safe uh, with the police around. I completely understand that. My question is, how does excluding them move this forward, especially when during the parade, the police will literally be all around you providing security and safety? So it's as if they're not there. They're there. They're just not allowed to be labeled as a participant. So, uh, again, um, I'm not sure how having them there, but just not in the parade, but using their services makes anyone feel any safer. Uh, What difference does it make if they're on the inside of the rope or the outside of the rope protecting those that are inside? And again, I'm just not understanding how this moves the discussion forward. The issue that is at hand that you're expressing in that um, the services that they are providing, the the security and safety, that is a privilege to feel secure and safe by police. That is a privilege. Not all of us have that privilege to feel safe and comfortable um, and, and feel that the police as a system have our best interests at heart. When you have um, 
mass incarceration rates of LGBTQ people. You have mass um, killings of LGBTQ people done by the police. How is one supposed to feel safe? I mean, if you do not represent the, the marginalized community that has been targeted by police, then sure, you will feel safe. But not everyone within the LGBTQ community feels that way. And unfortunately, when we, we can't just talk about the entirety of the community as if everyone has the same opinion, because there is still a lot of marginalization and separation that goes on within the LGBTQ community. So not everyone feels safe within these spaces. And I think if police are trying to enforce this safety and security at Pride, then they should be willing that if, hey, the services I'm trying to provide, people do not feel safe. It's, it's kind of like, okay, maybe I should take a step back. And what can I do to continue to promote that safety, comfortability, and security that is at Pride? And if people don't want them there, they should be very willing to say, okay, I need to step back. What can they do to fix that? And doesn't showing that they have gay members too that feel the exact same way as you do, isn't that a, a great bridging process? Like, I, again, I, like I understand everything you're saying, but I just don't understand how excluding them moves, finds a solution to the problem. Like, I don't think I, that's... I, I, I guess what I'm, I'm saying is the protest doesn't move the discussion forward. All it does is divide the community. No, I think it definitely moves the discussion forward because this, this discussion has been had within the community, within the LGBTQ community, specifically black queer people have been having this, this discussion before it blew up in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. This discussion is being had by everyone now, mm -hmm. including those in the community and outside. So the discussion is for certain moving forward. And as for the, the how does this make... Um, police individuals who are gay feel, I don't know how it makes them feel, but I can tell you this. Those who are on the outside looking in will, will think of it in the same way as this analogy I'm about to make. When we are discussing black people being targeted by police and a, and a white policeman says, well, I have black um, fellow service officers, I have black friends, that's not, and that's supposed to make everything justified or supposed to make you feel safe like they have your best interests in mind. That's not what is happening here. But it doesn't make anyone feel any better. Is this, do you think this is about the gay community or do you think this is about Black Lives Matter? I think that you cannot separate them because you have, you don't get to pick what you are marginalized by. You don't get to pick today I'm going to be discriminated against because I'm black or today I'm going to be discriminated against because I'm gay. They come together and they simultaneously work to marginalize you as a person. So together, when you have black queer people, which are on Black Lives Matter, embodying both sets of the community, this is a community issue. This is a, an issue of all. When one person feels oppressed, the community can no longer feel that equality is a thing that's attainable. You need to work together as a community. And I do not think that excluding the police is somehow going to deter all the work that was done. I do not believe that. I think, if anything, this is moving forward, saying that the police respect the wishes of an LGBTQ community that they are willing to align with and listen to. You cannot, as a police officer, say that you are doing what the LGBTQ community wants. 
Because, no, that's not what they want. That's not what everyone in the community wants. If you truly want to do what you say and claim that you as a police officer are supposed to uphold the safety and security and comfort of a community, you will listen to the representatives of all. And right now, even with this, this discussion being had, it is still as though the police are silencing because funding wants to be cut. Toronto is silencing the black queer population in Toronto. And everywhere else, that's silence. Don't, but some may say that you're silencing the discussion by excluding them. Some may say, some may say that you're silencing the discussion by using an organization that prided itself on including everybody is now excluding somebody. Well, I think that's problematic to say that we are that the community as a whole is is excluding when. The problem that we can't always... Well, you are. You're saying the community as a whole has excluded them from pride. I mean, you've... As a a, a gay community, you have excluded the Toronto police from pride. Like, you know, it is what it is. So again, again, I I keep coming back to this discussion point, Savoy, is that, yes, we're talking about it. It's all over the front pages now. But is it doing anything to move the discussion forward? Where does this end? Does this end in a kumbaya moment with everybody hugging each other, then eventually two or three years down the road from now, the Toronto police are then included in the parade? I think the issue that is what you are really referring to is the fact that if the police do not get their way of being included in this parade, if they do not get what they want, if it doesn't go their way, then that's where the problem begins. I think that if... This is some sort of alliance. I mean, the Black, Black Lives Matter is not in the wrong. They didn't start this, in, this, this corrupt relationship with the police. But are they stopping it? But are they stopping it from moving forward? Like to me, I see someone reaching out to you, and then you slapping their hand. I do you not see them participating not. in the parade as? As as a hand, as as hey, let's chat, let's get together, let's let's see if we can work this out. Like again, I don't no. see how removing somebody from the table of discussion moves the discussion forward. All it does is inflame divisiveness. That's I believe that's your opinion, and I believe that you having the privilege of feeling safe and comfortable around police can have that thought process. You can have that mentality, and that's very. That's acceptable because you've never been. But I guess I guess here, let me let me ask you this question, Savoy. If you feel so uh, uh, vulnerable around police, how can you handle having them walk within 10 feet of you as you walk by them in a parade route as they're as they're protecting the parade route? Like, wouldn't you be scared to be around them? Like, what difference does it make if they're inside the rope or outside the rope? Wouldn't this wouldn't you just be as scared of them either way? I think you don't get to you get you don't get to pick and choose as an outsider when you feel safe and when you don't when others. So then we can assume safe. from that that everybody that's down there will feel still incredibly unsafe. Just simply, like, if you don't you want them, if you don't, if you don't want them, but you are. How can you're making the same generalization? How can you how can you feel safe not having them within the parade, but you feel perfectly safe as long as they don't march with you, but just stand there and you march by them. Like, they're still in your presence. All of the police are there. Thousands of them. They're still there. They're just not in the parade. So how does that make you feel safer? I think that 
by having them in the parade and having them in a float, it's like you are celebrating all of the great things that they've done when they haven't been so great. The fact do you believe that, that do you believe that relations in this community within these two communities have improved at all in the last fifty years? I mean, that is that's a, a, now. Come a on, answer this honestly, question. Savoy. Do you honestly believe we have not made great straight strides in this over the last fifty years? I believe that we've made some strides. Then isn't that, isn't that, I agree with that, but is that, I understand it's never enough. It's never, never, ever enough, but is it not worth celebrating? That's my point. And you know what? You don't have these discussions if you're miles apart. Got to run Savoy, unfortunately, but I greatly thank you for the discussion. Savoy Williams, Brock student, recipient of the John Holland Award in 2015 and the Nelson Mandela Award for Youth in 2015. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.